The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Lord, teach thy people to love thy house, the best of all dwellings, the scriptures best of all books, thy sacraments best of all gifts, the communion of saints best of all company, and that we may as one family and in one place give thanks and adore thy glory. Help us to keep always thy day, the first of days, holy unto thee, our maker, our resurrection, and our life. God blessed forever. Amen. Well, like General MacArthur, I have returned. So, and you may not remember this, um, but we were actually in the Gospel of John. Uh, the spring gets a little crazy around here, as you know, with confirmation and that sort of thing. So we really broke up the end of our study of the Gospel of John. But we had started John, and we had actually worked through the first chapter, which in many respects is prologue to this Gospel. And today we're going to resume our study of the Gospel of John, and we will do so through the semester. Now, you may have seen the discipleship brochure, and it said I was doing the class on Anglicanism. I've already done that. And I was not bringing that back. That was a misprint. Uh, so we are picking up where we left off, and that is through our study of the Gospel of John. And we're going to pick up today at chapter 2. Now, I've said this many times before, and uh, this semester I'm going to do something new. That is, I'm going to start to take notes and uh, roll and see who is bringing their Bible with them uh, to this study. So I'm just going to let you know. Um, I'm going to be looking for those Bibles. So if you don't have one, I will buy you one. I'll supply you with one, but I want to encourage you to bring your Bibles with you. There's a great collect in the prayer book that says we need to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest God's holy word. Well, you can't read it, nor can you mark it, nor can you learn it, or inwardly digest it if you don't have it in front of you. So let me encourage you to do that. I know that the Baptists are much better at that than we are, um, but I'm determined to get even with them. So please bring your Bibles with you. I would... Uh, think you'll be blessed by it. Uh, before we begin, Jerry McCord, you have a very distinguished guest with you, and I see a purple shirt out there. It fills me with fear and trembling, but I um, want to give you the opportunity to introduce um, our distinguished guest. Bishop, welcome. We're delighted to have you with us today. God bless you. Thank you for all you do. So if you have your Bibles, and if you're on your phone, again, I'm going to assume you're not on eBay or anything like that, but you are, in fact, reading through because you've got a Bible app on your phone. But we're going to start with John chapter 2 today. We're going to jump right in, and we're going to go ahead and read through the first 12 verses. So on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish feet's rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, 
and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Now, you can see this is the first of Jesus' miracles. Most of you are probably very familiar with this story. If for no other reason, then we have all been to a wedding. And if you've been to a wedding in the Anglican or the Episcopal tradition, you know that there is a reference made to this great miracle, the first of Jesus' signs as the Gospel of John describes them. It's a homely event. As I said, we've all been to weddings before. Um, weddings are big business in our day and age. It's become actually an industry, the wedding industry, and people spend an enormous amount of money on weddings. It may surprise you to learn that that was not always the case. Uh, there was actually a time when people, a bride and a groom, would come to church on Sunday morning in the same way that um, mother and father will bring their child on Sunday morning and they will baptize them in the context of the Sunday service. Well, you know, that's actually how people used to get, wedding, uh, get married in the old days. They would come to church and in the context of Sunday service, the entire congregation would be there to witness and the reason for that is really very simple. First of all, it's because a wedding, a Christian wedding, is not meant to be a private affair. It's meant to be a public rite, just like baptism is meant to be a public rite. Furthermore, just as in baptism, the congregation is there to give their support, to lend their aid to this couple. How many of you have been married for any length of time? All right, well, any length of time, you know. <laughs> you know that marriage can be difficult. It really can. We put all of this time, effort, energy into weddings. If we put all that time, effort, and energy into the marriage, we would probably be better off. But you know, marriage can be difficult. And so you used to come to church because the congregation was there to support the bride and the groom the same way that we are there to support the child in baptism. We say, well, you who witness these vows do all in your power to support these peace per persons, people, whoever they are, in their life in Christ. And the congregation responds with a resounding, we will, exactly. Well, that's the way it was for weddings. That is no longer the case, of course. Uh, now weddings are big business. People sometimes will spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on a wedding. They'll go into great debt for a wedding. They'll have destination weddings. I think it's rather ironic that most Christian weddings were always done in a church, and now you find that probably 50% of all weddings are not done in a church, they're done someplace outside, perhaps, wherever it may be. But that is a marked change for the way that people get married today from the way it was done maybe 200 years ago. Well, weddings in the Middle East were big affairs as well. A Middle Eastern wedding is very different from a Western wedding. Um, they were elaborate affairs. And one of the big differences between a wedding in the Middle East as opposed to a wedding in Western culture today is the star of the show. Uh, in Western weddings, who's the star of the show? 
the bride, of course. She's queen for a day. It's, it's her day. Now, this is one of the reasons why mothers and daughters frequently have a falling out. It's because mothers sometimes forget that it's her day and not the mother's day. But yes, weddings are big affairs, and the bride is always the star of the occasion. We're happy if the groom looks okay, but it's the bride that we're paying all the attention to at the wedding. That was not the case in the Middle East. Certainly not in Jesus' day. The star of the show was not the bride. She was the one that simply showed up. The star of the show was the bridegroom. He was the important one. This comes through loud and clear when you think about some of the stories that Jesus told, the parables that he told. He told about a king who sent out invitations to his son's wedding. You'll also recall that Jesus told a parable about some wise and some foolish virgins who were trimming their lamps, and some had run out of oil, and they had to run off to town to get some oil. Why? Because the bridegroom was arriving. And once the bridegroom arrived, the door was shut and no more guests would be allowed to enter. And of course, the Apostle Paul makes reference to the fact that marriages, Christian marriages, actually represent Christ's relationship to his church. The church is the bride and Christ is the what? The bridegroom. So that's the first thing to note about first century Middle Eastern weddings, that they were different than weddings today. Uh, the bridegroom was the star of the show, and these were indeed elaborate affairs. Um, people in those days went into a lot of debt as well. Uh, in fact, a Jewish wedding like the one that's being described here in this chapter in John's Gospel, the second chapter of John's Gospel, these uh, weddings could go on for days. You know, people didn't travel great distances in the first century. That was difficult. It was arduous. And so if you were going to go, you were going to stay there for some time. And uh, these affairs could go on literally for a week, the celebration. So just imagine that, those of you who are parents of daughters. But here's the good news. In the first century, guess who paid for the wedding? The bridegroom's family, not the bride's family. So some of you are thinking, now that's a custom that we need to bring back in vogue. <laughs> so these were elaborate affairs. They would take place over the course of many days. Really, the bridegroom was the star of the show, and it was the bridegroom's family who was responsible for paying for everything. And here's something else that was very significant about a wedding in that day and in that culture, and that is wine always figured prominently. Wine was always a huge part of a Jewish wedding celebration. Now, we are ever conscious of the fact that alcoholism is a problem uh, in some families. We know that very well, and it should be noted, and we want to note it right off the bat, that the Bible warns us about the dangers of excessive drinking. In fact, it warns us over and over again. In Genesis chapter 9, for example, Noah was condemned for getting drunk and passing out in his tent, and his sons came and mocked him as he was lying there naked, and he was condemned for that. They were condemned for it as well. The book of Proverbs says, do not drink too much wine and get drunk. The book of Ephesians says, do not get drunk on wine, for that is debauchery. 
And Paul writing to Titus, since we have a bishop in the room today, bishops were told that they were not to be lovers of wine. They were not to drink much wine. So there are many warnings in the Bible about the dangers of excessive drinking. And that is something that we need to remember. This is why the Apostle Paul talks about the weaker brother. We need to be concerned for the weaker brother, for those who may have a proclivity toward alcoholism in their family. We now know today that it is a disease and that sometimes runs in the family. So we need to be aware of the fact that the Bible warns us about this sort of thing. But we also need to remember that the Bible does not forbid the drinking of alcohol or the drinking of wine. And anybody who says that it does, and sometimes you get Christian denominations who are really hard and fast on this rule, the problem with that, of course, is the fact that Jesus turned water into wine right here. It's the first of his miracles. And as we're going to see, it was no small amount of wine. It was a large amount of wine that Jesus produced. Now, some would say, well, that was unfermented grape juice. This is just Welch's, you know. The problem with that, of course, is the reference to drunkenness. What does the master say? He said, most people save the good wine. What? Well, they serve it first. And then when everybody's drunk, they bring out the bad wine. But you have saved the good wine until last. So we know that this was not grape juice. This was not Welch's. This was, in fact, alcohol. J.C. Ryle, the great bishop of Liverpool, one of the great evangelical lights of the Anglican tradition, put it well. He said, if our Lord Jesus Christ actually worked a miracle in order to supply wine at a marriage feast, it seems to me impossible to prove that drinking wine is sinful. So what is the Bible condemning here? Well, what the Bible is condemning here is excess. And it's not just excess of alcohol, it's excess of anything. Gluttony, for example, is one of the seven deadly sins. So it's not the consumption of alcohol that is the problem. It is the excessive consumption of alcohol that is the problem. Furthermore, we need to remember that in the first century, in Jewish culture, wine was a symbol for joy. The psalmist says, wine gladdens the heart of man. And the prophet Isaiah invites us to come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. The rabbis used to say, and Anglicans can relate to this, where there is no wine, there is no joy. And so that was the attitude in the first century. So the setting is this wedding. It's a Middle Eastern affair. It would have been, I don't, won't go so far as to say a raucous affair, but it would have been a great celebration. And the wine would have been flowing liberally. Here's the second thing I want you to notice, though. It was in that sort of a setting that Jesus was welcome. That Jesus was welcome. Look at verse 1 again. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. This would have been a big affair. There would have been people having a lot of fun. And it's interesting to note that Jesus was invited to that kind of an affair. I think that's a very important thing for us to remember. Jesus would have traveled a great distance to get there, 
if the Gospel of John is giving us a straight narrative, one of the things that you will notice is that Jesus up to this point had been down to the south. He'd been down uh, near the Jordan River with John the Baptist. Jesus had been baptized by John. John had been down there baptizing people in the Judean wilderness. And Jesus was invited to this wedding, and presumably that's why he returned to Galilee. Well, it was a considerable journey. It was about 70 to 77 miles to the north. So Jesus is traveling a great distance to get to this affair that he's been invited to. It was important to him to be there. It was important to those who were the hosts to have him there. I think that's important for us to understand that Jesus is often in the company of people who are having a good time. You know, sometimes the impression that we Christians have of Jesus is these sort of sober, that Jesus sort of frowns on people having a good time, that, you know, Jesus would never be in the company of people who are having a raucous party. How many of you have sort of grown up with that impression of Jesus as sort of an old sober side? That was the impression that many people had. But that certainly was not what we find here in John's Gospel. I pointed out to you in the sermon last week that Jesus was a joyful person, so joyful, in fact, that sometimes crowds in excess of 5,000 people followed him wherever he went, and the people received his teaching gladly. So if you have this impression of Jesus as rather stern and pious, I want you to understand Jesus was a joyful individual. He liked to be in the presence of people who were having a good time. As a matter of fact, he was oftentimes accused of having too good a time. Keep your finger there in John for just a minute and turn, if you will, to Luke's gospel. So we are in Luke chapter 7, beginning at verse 32. Jesus is describing the crowds, the people. And he said, they are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man, on the other hand, has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Isn't it interesting? That was the charge that was sometimes levied against Jesus, that he was a glutton, that he was a drunkard because he was in the presence of people who were having a good time. That's an important lesson for us, I think, as Christians we are meant to be joyful people. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not suggesting that you have to be gluttonous or you have to drink excessively in order to be a good or to have a good time. Jesus would never have done that. Jesus was satisfied in all circumstances. But what I do want you to understand is that Jesus was comfortable in the company of people who were having a good time, a good clean time. And what's more, he was welcome in the presence of people who were having a good, clean time. But there was a problem, wasn't there? Problem here at this wedding, and that was the wine had been flowing liberally. Everybody's having a good time. Perhaps more guests showed up than they had anticipated. You know how it is. There's always somebody who doesn't RSVP. There's always somebody. Maybe they had wedding crashers. I don't know. But what we do know is that at some point in the course of this celebration, before it had concluded, they ran out of wine. 
Now, bear in mind that first century Middle Eastern culture was a shame-based society. Shaming somebody was one of the things that people sometimes, unfortunately, did. As a matter of fact, it's one of the things that is unique about Middle Eastern culture today. You know, we Westerners cannot understand why people who come from an Arab culture look on the Crusades as something that happened yesterday. We think that's all ancient history. In fact, I'd be willing to wager, now I know you're a very informed group, that the average person doesn't know anything about the Crusades. Because that happened a long, long time ago. We may have some recollection of something happening over in the Middle East, but we have no idea as to what it was. And yet people over there talk about crusaders, and meaning us, as though we were just there yesterday. And one of the reasons for that is because we defeated those people, and they feel shame about it, and their whole culture is built upon shame, and the whole desire is to somehow wipe away the shame. Well, if that's the sort of context, that Middle Eastern context, just imagine if you are the host of an event, you've celebrated with your family and your friends, you've invited people from far and wide, they've traveled a great distance, it's cost them a great deal of money to get there, it's been an arduous journey, and in the middle of the celebration, you run out of food and you run out of wine. Have you ever had a party where you've thrown a party and run out of food? How does that? No, you've never had that again? <laughs> I want to come to your house the next time you have a party. How many of you have ever been to a party where they've run out of food? We've all done that, and it's really unfortunate, especially if you didn't eat before you went to the party, and by the time you get in the line, they picked it clean. Well, they ran out of wine, and this would have been mortifying to the host. And Mary knew that. Mary knew that. Ever the mother ever concerned for the hosts. There have been some who suggested that the person getting married here may have been one of Jesus' siblings. We don't know that. It's not said here. But what we do know is that Mary was very concerned for the hosts and how embarrassed and how ashamed they would be. This was a serious social faux pas. And so she wanted to help them out, and she knew exactly who to go to. She went to Jesus. She went to Jesus. Take a look at verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, it's obvious from the way she puts this that she expects him to do something about it. Nobody else at this point probably knew what Jesus was capable of, but she did. And so she goes to them and she says, they have no wine. And I, I love the exchange that takes place here. And Jesus says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? I'm just a guest. I'm off the clock. This is, this is not my affair. And Mary doesn't even argue with Jesus. She just ignores almost what he says, turn to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you to do. And Jesus is a good son. He understands the fifth commandment. You honor your father and your mother. And when she said, they've run out of wine, and he says, this has nothing to do with me, she says, you... Do whatever he tells you to do. Jesus simply complies, doesn't he? He simply complies. Why was it that Jesus initially was reluctant to interfere in this event? Well, 
the expression that he uses here with his mother is an interesting one. He says, my time or my hour has not yet come. That is an expression that you will hear frequently in the Gospel of John. Jesus will frequently say, my hour has not yet come. My time has not yet come. As we go through this gospel, I'll point out all the occasions where Jesus says that over and over and over again. In fact, it's not till we get toward the end of the gospel of John in the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry that he finally, on one occasion, when Philip brings a group of Gentiles, Greeks, to him, that Jesus finally says, my hour has come. So that's a very important theme in this fourth gospel, this theme of the hour, the moment, the time. What is Jesus referring to here? That moment, that hour, that time when He would be revealed, when His glory would be made manifest and the world would recognize Him for who He was. You'll notice that oftentimes Jesus would perform a great miracle. Did you ever notice this? I always thought it was curious for the longest time that Jesus would perform some extraordinary miracle and then He'd say, now don't tell anybody about it. I think one of the most extraordinary occasions is when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. You remember the synagogue ruler's daughter who'd become sick and they sent messengers off and Jesus was en route and he got stopped by the woman with a chronic bleeding disorder and by the time he dealt with her and got back on the road again, the little girl had died. Now Jesus gets there, he arrives at the house, the mourners have already gathered, he puts them all out, he goes into the upper room, he takes the little girl by the hand and he says, Talitha kume, I say to you, little girl, get up. And all of a sudden, the blood begins to course through the veins. The body begins to warm. Breath comes back into the body. It is a miracle. Listen, she was dead. Don't let anybody fool you into thinking that she was just, well, you know, in a, in a comatose state. She was dead. People in the first century understood what it was to be dead. They dealt with death on a daily basis. She was dead. Jesus brought her back to life. Can you imagine when he handed her back to her parents, how, how excited they were, how they rejoiced, how they gave thanks. And then he says, now don't tell anybody about this. And what did they do? They went and told everybody about it. That's generally what happened. They went and told everybody about it. But why was Jesus saying, don't tell anybody about it? Jesus understood how human beings are. And he understood that they would completely miss the point. They would celebrate the miracles and miss the man and the message. Jesus knew, even when he performed these extraordinary miracles, restoring sight to the blind, or causing the lepers to be cleansed, or healing those who were lame, that they might leap for joy. Jesus knew that even when he did that, they were still at some point later going to get sick. I've told you before, I've always thought Lazarus one of the most pitiful people in all of history. I mean, it's bad enough to die once. Who wants to die twice? And that poor fellow did. No, it was the message. It was the man. All of these things. We're going to come back to this theme in just a moment. All of these things, John says, were signs. He never refers to them as miracles, although they were. He refers to them as signs. So Jesus doesn't want everybody to make a big production and miss the point. And it's not until the end of his ministry, when he's gone to Jerusalem, 
when he's ready to mount the arms of the cross and give himself as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world that he finally says, now, now my hour has come. Now the time has come for me to be glorified. And where was Jesus most glorified in all of history? Interestingly enough, not in the calming of the winds and the waves on the Sea of Galilee. And not in the opening of the eyes of the blind or the cleansing of the lepers. Jesus was most glorified in his suffering and in his death on the cross. There is where God is most glorified. Well, uh, Jesus doesn't think that his hour has yet come, but his mother has other ideas for him. And so she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Verse 6, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. That's important. We're going to come back to that as well. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then they pull out the two-buck chuck <laughs> from Trader Joe's. But you, you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. Jesus produces wine. Now, you know the miracle, and I'm not going to presume to know how this happened. C.S. Lewis has actually written on this, how Jesus simply somehow advanced the supernatural or the natural process that there was really no real change here. Jesus just simply did what nature does, but he did it in an advanced rate. I don't understand the miracles, and I don't presume to understand the miracles. If God can create the heavens and the earth ex nihilo by the sheer power of his word, I suppose turning water into wine is small potatoes. What we do know is that Jesus did it, and there are two things to note here. First of all, Jesus produced a lot of wine. These were big jars, it says. For the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So you do the math, and that comes out to somewhere between 120 and 130, 180 gallons of wine. That, that's a lot of wine. If you were hoping that these guests were going to go home, and now you've got that much wine, they're going to be there for a long time. That's an enormous amount of wine. And not only that, but we're told it was the best wine. That was what was so shocking, is that most people did. They, they served the best wine, and when everybody was drunk and they didn't know what they were tasting, they'd bring out the swill. But that was not the case here. Jesus produced an abundant amount of wine, and he produced the best wine. And John says this, the first of his signs he did in Cana of Galilee. Why are these referred to as signs as opposed to miracles, for the simple reason that John is reminding us that these things point to something beyond themselves. That's why Jesus didn't want anybody to know right away that he was the Messiah, because they'd focus on the miraculous, the supernatural, and they would miss the man, they would miss his message. Those things were never ends in and of themselves. They were simply meant to authenticate the man and his message. 
So these are signs, and they point to something greater than themselves. Now, we've talked about signs in here before. I've said if you want to go to um, something like uh, south of the border, or let's put it this way, since south of the border are sort of Bucky's. <laughs> Bucky's up there in Florence. Incidentally, I've been to Bucky's. Um, I, uh, there's nothing quite like it, I'll be honest with you. But let's say you want to go to Bucky's, and if you've never been to Bucky's and you don't know what Bucky's is, well, you just need to get on I-95 and drive to Florence and find out what Bucky's is. It's unlike anything you've ever seen before, I can assure you. But let's say you want to go to Bucky's or you want to go to south of the border, and there are all these signs along the road that say only five more miles to air-conditioned rooms at south of the border or only, you know, three more miles to Pedro at south of the border or to Bucky's. And then you pass the sign that says, you know, you pass those places and it says, you know, you just passed Bucky's, you pass, just passed, you know, south of the border. What do you do? If you want to go there, you have to turn around. Why? Because the sign that says only five more miles, four more miles is not the destination. The sign that says you just passed it is not the destination. Those things point to a reality greater than themselves. Well, that's what Jesus' miracles were. They were signs pointing to a greater reality, pointing to who he was, the Son of God in the flesh. And they were meant to teach us lessons. You know, it's interesting. If you go toward the end of John's Gospel, one of the things that he says is that Jesus did many other things that are not recorded in this book. In fact, he also says that if everything that Jesus ever did had been written down, he said the world could not contain the volumes. So John is very clear. He's being selective in what he has chosen. He knows Jesus did many other things. Let Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell you about those. But I'm choosing these specifically. Why? He said, so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life in his name. So he's being purposely selective. And he's chosen this particular miracle, unique to John, the turning of water into wine to teach us some lessons. What are some of the lessons that this particular miracle are meant to teach us? Well, first of all, it's meant to teach us that Jesus is the one who brings true joy. If that's what wine represents, if wine represents joy in this context, and Jesus changes 120 or 180 gallons of water into wine, then what this is teaching us is that Jesus is the one who brings true joy to our lives. Not the cheapened kind of happiness that the world offers us, but true joy. He made this point very clear. He said, I have come that you may have life. And I like the fact that Jesus adds on. He doesn't say, I've just come that you may have life. I've come that you may have abundant life. I don't want you just to survive, to scrape through a kind of difficult existence. I want you to have abundant life. That's what the sign teaches us, that Jesus Christ is the one that has come to bring you abundant life. There are some of you out there, I'm sure, who are just making it day by day. And there's no real joy, there's no real contentment in your life. You're looking for it, but you're not finding it. I want you to know there's only one place you will, and that's with Jesus Christ, because he's the only one that can take the bland water of your life and turn it into the finest vintage. So he's the one that comes to bring us true joy. 
It's a reminder to us, then, that Christians should be joyful people. We should not be discouraged, depressed people. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not going to have difficulty. Of course we are. We're not immune to suffering and pain in this world. Jesus himself was not immune to those things. But nevertheless, we should be a joyful people, if for no other reason than we know how the story ends, don't we? The sufferings of this present time, the Apostle Paul said, are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. So abundant life, Christians should be joyful people. It also reminds us, and this I don't think is a secondary lesson, I think it's a very important lesson, that Christ is ever ready to remove the shame and the guilt and the stigma from your lives. That's what he did for this family. It would have been a great embarrassment. They would have been shamed. And oftentimes we are filled with shame, aren't we? Shame is one of the worst feelings in the world. Jesus Christ is perfectly capable of removing your shame. That's what the cross is all about. Removing whatever shame it may be in your life, whatever has produced that shame, that guilt, Jesus Christ is perfectly capable of removing that. It's also a lesson about manifesting Jesus' glory. This uh, first of his signs he did in Cana of Galilee, and he manifested his glory. I think this means the glory in two places or two areas. One, it glory. It, manifests Jesus' own glory, the glory of his person. People begin to catch a glimpse of who he really is. He's more than a mere man. They're beginning to see. Now, many people didn't notice this because not even the master of the feast knew what had happened, but the servants knew, we're told. These servants, who would have been nobodies, they're nameless in this account, but nevertheless, they caught a glimpse. They knew what had happened, didn't they? They caught a glimpse, just a glimpse at this early stage of this one who was capable of doing all things well. And I have no doubt that many of them put their faith in him. Second thing, though, that this teaches us about glory is the glorious future that awaits the children of God, that awaits you and me. Did you ever notice that the book of Revelation describes heaven as a marriage feast? The marriage supper of the Lamb, a glorious and wonderful celebration where the church is the bride, dressed in beautiful attire, washed white by the blood of the Lamb. And Jesus is the bridegroom. That's what awaits us, a glorious celebration. You know, one of the wonderful things about weddings is that they are great reunions. Oftentimes, family members and friends that you have not seen for years, suddenly you're reunited with them. That is what awaits you and me, this glorious celebration where the wine and the food never run out. We are gathered with all those who have gone that's what awaits us. That's why I say we know how the story ends. The rest of the world doesn't. And that's why it's living for the moment. But you and I can live for the future because we know how the story ends. Here's one final lesson I think that we can apply here. And that is this. God can use even our meager gifts. 
Jesus doesn't say, all right, we need wine. Well, I, I can do something about that, but somebody needs to go out and pick me some grapes. Jesus said, what do you have here? Well, well we got us some water to serve people. Well, all right. I'll work with the water. And that's exactly what he does. The servants bring tepid water in those large stone jars. And Jesus, because he is the creator, the sustainer of all things, performs a miracle. I want you to know God can do that with you. You may feel that you have nothing whatsoever to offer in terms of the kingdom of God. That the wine has run out for you. Maybe you think, well, I'm at a certain age where I can't make much of a difference anyway. I want you to understand that Jesus Christ can take even your meager offering, even your tepid water, and he can use it. He can use it. He can turn it into the finest of wine. All you need to do is pour yourself out. Pour yourself out like water, and he'll turn you into wine. He'll transform you. He'll use you for his glory to make himself known in the world. You know, it's actually God's pleasure to use people like that. Not the great, not the high, not the mighty. Sometimes he does, yes, but most of the time he doesn't. For the simple reason that the high and the mighty have a tendency to take credit for themselves. I mean, when was the last time you ever heard a politician that said, oh, so-and-so did that, it wasn't me? Unless it's something illegal. Then they're always willing to say, oh, that wasn't me, that was him. But most of the time, they want to take credit for themselves, for anything good that happens. But the poor, the needy who have nothing to offer, Jesus is more than happy to use them for his glory and for his honor, that he might be lifted up and draw all men to himself. And the first of these signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. It's no mistake, I think, that this was the first of his signs. He would go on to do many other miracles, but to me, this is one of the most precious indeed. Because the reminder of who Jesus is, the one who removes our shame, removes our guilt, the one who can use us, even our meager gifts, for his glory and for his honor. And the one who enjoys being in the company of happy people. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this, the first of Jesus' signs that he did in Cana of Galilee. We thank you that he took this water and he turned it into wine, an abundance of wine, the finest vintage imaginable. And we thank you that it still pleases Jesus to do that even today. Lord, many of us feel as though we have nothing to offer, nothing to contribute to the advance of the kingdom, that time has passed us by, but Lord, we know that is not the case. Help us to be like the servants and to do whatever he tells us to do, that we, like them, may catch a glimpse of his glory. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.